Hi everybody, thanks for tuning in. Before we start this episode, Adam and I would like to take the opportunity to acknowledge the passing of Keith Reid, one of the writers of You're the Voice. Keith, famously known as the lyricist for the song A Whiter Shade of Pale, passed away during the time that we were researching, connecting with the writers and recording the interviews for the episode that we're listening to today. As some of you may be aware, there is also a recording of John Farnham singing A Whiter Shade of Pale, which we'll listen to an excerpt of that now. And as we do, Adam and I would like to dedicate this episode of You're the Voice to the memory of one of its valuable writers, Keith Reid. Skip the lights and dangle. We turn cartwheels across the floor. I was feeling kind of seasick. The crowd called out for more. The room. Was coming harder as the ceiling flew away. We call out for another drink. The way to walk the train. Just ghostly Turned to Hi, this is Chris Thompson, one of the writers of You're the Voice. Hi, I'm Maggie Ryder, co-writer of You're the Voice. And I'm Andy Kunter, another one of the songwriters of You're the Voice. And you're listening to the He's the, the Voice, Voice podcast. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. And the winner is... And Mr. John Farnham. 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 
Sir John Farnham for Whistling Jack. But I, most of all, would like to thank my manager and very close friend, Glenn Wheatley. He put his money where my mouth is, and I thank him very much for that. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you very much indeed. Good evening. Here is the news. Greetings, Farnham fans. You're listening to He's the Voice, the one and only podcast devoted to whispering Jack and the remarkable career achievements of Australian national treasure, John Farnham. My name's Adam Stolfo, and I'm joined here by my good friend, the great man himself, Mr. Nigel Landis, is back for us for track two. How you doing, Nigel? G'day, Adam. I'm doing really well. How about you? Oh, mate, I'm fantastic. And, uh, mate, uh, could you be any more fantastic than the day we're going to be talking about John Farnham's biggest song? (laughs) Yes, it is. So this is the second of our song-by-song deep dives. Uh, Yeah, look, uh, I was going to make a gag, Nigel, about the fact that, like, you know, there's no hoopla at all around this song. It's a deep cut buried somewhere deep into Whispering Jack and that. But we can't. We can't hide it any longer. It's massive, this song. Yeah, that's right, Adam. No one was particularly interested in anything John Farnham was working on, so nobody expected anything like You're the Voice. This song helped redefine John Farnham for a third time and actually helped establish the third phase of his career and, as history would show, the most successful part of his career. But, Nige, how on earth do we start to do this incredible song of justice it so rightly deserves? I mean, it's pretty intimidating. Yeah, certainly when we were sitting down and working out what we wanted to achieve in this podcast, we both sort of took a breath and sort of went, oh, my God, you're the voice is going to be one hell of a thing to to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Um, As we've discussed many times, You're the Voice transcends the album of Whispering Jack. It's identifiable in its own right, not simply just the biggest track that came off of Whispering Jack. Indeed. Now, this anthemic song, complete with hand claps in the intro, a bagpipe solo, slamming car doors, doubling for sample percussion in this song, Mm. and some inspired application of the Fairlight CMI synthesizer... It all ensured that the buzz around this Farnham comeback at the time kept on mounting. Yeah. The anthemic quality of the melody of this song as well, it's absolutely undeniable here. Like, the way that we hear John perform this and, you know, his vocal interpretation mm-hmm. 
combined with the quality and impact of this recording, I think it was absolutely vital to lifting it to what can only be described as a, as a mammoth of a hit. Well, you know what I'm saying? And for that, I think the appeal of it, and, and yeah, you're right, the way that, I mean, when you think the, the hand claps at the beginning and then it builds, just that before John even sings the first note in that song, there is a building of music to the point that can pull you into it straight away before the first 100%. note is sung. And yep. so when it hits that first chorus, you know, you, you're just hooked into it straight away. Yeah, so, it, the definition of lightning in a bottle, timing-wise as well, like yeah. getting this into the space of John Farnham, he just completely embodies the spirit of the song. Yeah, entirely. Yeah. Um, before we move into the story of You're the Voice, uh, one of the things that I just want to quickly touch on is um, the stats, yep. yeah, the chart information. So You're the Voice as a single was released on the 12th of September, 1986. The B-side of that uh, single was um, the track off the album, Going, Going, Gone. Yeah, which is really interesting considering it's their song. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And um, uh, You're the Voice spent six weeks in the charts before it actually charted at the 14th position, which was on the 20th of October. Right. So this is, what was, is this around when Whispering Jack came out as well, the album? Well, the 20th of October is the day that Whispering Jack came out. Right. So So it's almost like the album release, like absolutely kicked it off. Yeah, 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 yeah. So uh, the week after it moved into the sixth position. And then from then, it hit number one, and it stayed there for a total of seven weeks. And as we've discussed in our previous episodes, uh, the Kent Music Reports of the day only kept the stats for the top 20. So what I've got for you here is that it remained in the top 20 for 19 weeks from the time that it was released. And it just progressively slipped from the second spot, the third, fifth, sixth, 15th, 18th, and down to the 20th spot. (laughs) <laughs> by the 23rd of February 1987. Yeah. Interesting over that time. So You're the Voice was number one for seven weeks in that period. The other songs that were number one of that time. Um, Here we go. I love were this. Venus from Bananarama. Of course. Funky Town from Pseudo Echo. Yeah. Walk Like an Egyptian from The Bangles. Absolutely. And You Keep Me Hanging On from Kim Wilde. Okay. So, yeah. yeah, so they're the songs that feature there's a number one position at the same time that You're the Voice was in the charts. So Pressure Down came in in December from what we spoke about in our last episode. So You're the Voice was still charting while Pressure Down came into the charts. Correct, that's right. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I like it. I like when more than one song from an artist comes into the uh, the stats at the same time. That's saying something about an album, you know? Yeah, yeah. 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 So, yeah, he had two hits in the in the top 20 uh, yeah. at the same time. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, just just incredible. I mean, and by this stage in John's career as well, like mm-hmm. uh, Sadie and was it Raindrops Knives that also hit yeah. number one yeah. earlier in his career? So it had been a long time, a long time between drinks since he's had a song hit the top of the Aussie charts. Yeah, here. and just to clarify that, Raindrops was released at the end of 1969, yeah. but it didn't chart as a number one hit until January of 1970. 16 and a half years between Raindrops and you're the voice, John Farnham's next number one hit. Nice. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, thanks for that, Nigel. Good stats. Okay, Nigel, in regards to the musician credits for You're the Voice, we've obviously got uh, John referring to himself as Whispering Jack vocals, yep. David mm-hmm. Hirschfelder for keyboards and Fairlight, Brett Garsed for guitars, mm-hmm. Roger McLaughlin for the fretless bass, 
Um, yeah. Backing vocals, we've got two people that we recognise here, Nigel. We've got Penny Dyer, who was a you know a backing singer, obviously performed mm-hmm. a lot with uh, Nicky Nichols at this time, yep. and David Hirschfelder himself, which I always uh, gave me a bit of a chuckle. But uh, you know, like he is a he is a genius after all. Uh, and a couple of names, other names here as well. So we've got Rosie Bazzini, Sandy Weeks, Helen Cornish, Colin Setches. And Mel Stainton, all right? So, yeah, I don't really... I can't say we we don't have a huge amount to tell you about, um, you know, some of those individuals. I mean, they're all great singers. They all make up what I refer to as the other boys choir. But, yeah, like the final credit there as well is the Fairlight and Drum programs, Jack, Ross and Dave. Here's the interesting thing with this little list here as well, Nige, is that how come David Hirschfelder gets credited for keyboards and Fairlight, and then he gets a second mention for the Fairlight down the bottom with the, the Fairlight and drum programs? He gets mentioned more than once. So, you know, all over it, all over this one, Nige. Lucky man. Now, You're the Voice was written by four British music industry insiders with impressive credentials, okay? So we've got yep. Chris Thompson, Maggie Ryder, Andy Coonter, and Keith Reid. Yeah, that's right. Um, Chris Thompson, known from the Manfred Mann's Earth Band. Yep. Andy Kunter spent six years uh, with the Australian band Icehouse. He sure did. Maggie Ryder, principally known as a backing vocalist for a variety of bands, most popular being Queen and yep. the Arrhythmics. That's it, yep. And Keith Reid was best known for being the songwriter for actually all of the material by the band Procol Harum prior yep. to their 2017 album, which was called Novum. So we had the opportunity to actually speak to the three writers, being Chris, Andy and Maggie. So why don't we pick up on uh, our discussion with them? Now, for the listeners out there, we did actually record these interviews separately over a six-month period. Um, but we have compiled them in a way for the benefit of them telling the story that they have to tell. So I want to start with my very first question uh, directed towards Maggie Ryder. Were you aware of John Farnham as an artist prior to his recording of You're the Voice? No, never heard of him before that. Um, I was totally unaware of anything going on in Australia, actually, at that point. Mm Mm-hmm. Andy, have you got anything you want to add to that? Uh, very good question. I honestly didn't know much about the Sadie days. Um, I What I did know was that John Farnham had joined the Little River Band and I vaguely knew that he had done something before in the past. But I didn't know much about it, to be quite honest. And my ears didn't prick up and really take notice until I heard he was going to do a song I'd co-written. And then people started to say, oh, he's a pop star. He did Sadie the Cleaning Lady or something. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, okay, well, there you go. That's that's pretty good. That's more than I did. (laughs) uh, That was pretty good. But since then, of course, I've seen a lot of that stuff and heard a lot more of the stories about his early days. And I think um, somebody was telling me that he was in Charlie Girl on the stage and done all kinds of different things. So he obviously had a lot of experience before he came from nowhere, as it were, to do um, Whispering Jack. Yeah. yeah, so that was that was mid '80s, uh, Andy. That you would have first heard about him then, because I think he was with yeah. LRB right now from like it was '82 to '85 or something like Correct. that. Is that right? Yep. Like roughly? Yeah. Well, yeah. So, and that's when I first went to Australia. Was '82 yeah. with okay. Ice House. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that. So that's what I knew him as somebody in, in Little River Band, basically. Yeah. <laughs> indeed. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> that's it. Yes. Um, yeah. 
And Chris, I remember reading some incorrect information that suggested that you were actually here in Australia in the early 70s. And um, uh, you had something that you wanted to add to this uh, question as well. Um, well, I was never in Australia in the 70s, but I was in New Zealand. So, um, but Sadie the Cleaning Lady, of course, was a hit there as well. Um, you know, to be honest with you, it, it wasn't my kind of music. So I really didn't have <laughs> much of an opinion about it at all, except that, uh, you know, we'd everybody would walk around going, Sadie, the cleaning lady. Naturally. You know, yeah. And he, he, he kind of, to me, he was like the Tommy Steele of Australia. Yeah. I don't know how to describe Tommy Steele other than he was a bit of a lad, you know. So, but that was really pretty much my only impression of little Johnny Farnham at that point in time. Yes. Now, Chris, how old were you when you wrote You're the Voice? And what were the inspirations and events that sort of influenced you in writing of the song? Um, well, it, we kind of started, we started writing it, I think, uh, 1983. So I was 36, something mm -hmm. like that. And the inspiration was actually, there was a big um, CND, you know, Campaign for Nuclear Disarmament. Um, there was a big rally in London. And... Um, a whole bunch of us had decided we were going to go down to, you know, into town to um, join the march because we felt it was important to, you know, put our voice in, so to speak. Um, it started about seven o'clock, I think. And I don't know what happened. I can't exactly remember, but we all slept in and we were really upset. We woke up at nine, just really stupid. Nobody set an alarm. And we were all pretty upset, turned the television on, and there it was all happening. And I was really annoyed with myself for missing that because, you know, I don't know why it affected me, but I really thought I should have been there. And that was the inspiration for me writing You're the Voice, really. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Um, Andy, can I move on to you and ask you to recount something that you remember about writing You're the Voice? Well, the first thing we did was we, we had to get a sort of a drum beat to work to. And Chris had a, one of those Lindrum machines. Um, and so, you know, we started, we got a bass drum and a, and a snare drum going. And then we were going to put on a hi-hat pattern. And it so happens on those machines, the hi-hat could also be hand claps, depending upon which way you set it. And the previous session he'd done with it, apparently he had it on hand claps. Yeah, so I had it on the Lindrum and it was kind of, you know, it was that. Uh... So that's what we started um, writing with, really. And then we thought, you know what, that's actually pretty good. So, so um, that's really how the hand clap thing came in, which has become a feature of the song, funnily enough. A huge yeah, feature. Seems to use that now, yeah. So we had the beat and thought, oh, OK, that's so far so good. And I then just put my hands to the keyboard and the first thing that came along was the sort of basic chords, uh, you know, that, that actually in the end we used for both the verse and the chorus. Uh, it was just simple three or four chords or whatever it is. And uh, we thought that was great. And so I was playing the keyboard with the drum machine was going, Chris was playing a bass. And we played that over and over and over again. So we thought, oh man, this has got a great feel. This is going to be, this is going to be something. 
-hmm. And then after about 45 minutes, we thought, well, we better come up with another part. We can't just keep doing this all the way through the song. And we tried everything we could think of. We tried this chord change, that chord change, this, that. Nothing sounded right. So um, in the end, we said, I don't know if we're going to be able to do this. So we decided to call our friend Maggie, who we had worked with a few months earlier on the song. And uh, we thought, well, maybe she can come over. Maybe she can think of something. She arrived and over a period of, I would say, five or six hours, you know, we played for an hour or two. Then we had a cup of tea. And then we stood outside and then we did that again. And then we went through it again and we tried some ideas and everything like that. And then at the end of that session, which started, if I remember rightly, be about two o'clock in the afternoon, I think, and finished about eight. We agreed that we would look at some melody ideas because that's the way we used to work. We'd, we'd go to melody and then after we'd got a melody, we'd look at words. So they left and I sat at home playing through the song and I just had this idea for the whoa whoa part whoa I had, I had that idea just came to me suddenly so I was pretty happy about that because I thought it was you know it suited the music very much and about 9 30 I got a phone call from Maggie and she said can I come back to your place because I've got an idea for the chorus and I sort of I said yeah of course you can and put the phone down. She was on the way. And I, I was kind of thought, oh, shit, I really liked what I had for the chorus. So, you know, anyway, she arrived about 10 o'clock or something like that. And she sat down at the keyboard and she went, da, 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 da. And I went, whoa. And there it was. <laughs> yeah, it basically just, you know, and it, it was fantastic. I think what happened then was I sat around for a week or so working on melodies for the chorus. And I think I checked them with both writers. We got together again and looked at the melody things. And then I wrote a lyric. So I think it was about after a month, I had a lyric and a melody. And I went to the guys and we put together some kind of demo, which I think I still have the music demo. And we went through the lyric and they all seemed happy with what it was i wish i had uh, my book i kept everything in a book when i was writing lyrics but some books got unfortunately mislaid when i was moving between countries so i don't actually have a draft of that lyric unfortunately but anyway i just didn't think the lyric was as good as the song was i just some of it was fine but there were some lines that i thought could be better you know i was thinking shit you know what am i gonna do am i gonna sit there working on myself or am I going to ask somebody else to help me? So anyway, we were doing a Man for Man's record and we had a visit from uh, Keith Reed, the Procol Harum lyricist, who I didn't know at all. But he was a friend of the engineer and he just popped in to see how things were going. And so, you know, I just was standing there next to one of the best lyricists in the world. And I just suddenly said, Keith, do you co-write? And Keith said, no, I don't co-write <laughs> lyrics. And I said, well, look, I've got this song and I really like a lot of the lyric, but I think some of it needs to be fixed up. So he said, um, come tomorrow to my place and we'll see what we can do. So I went there, played it to him. He liked it. And, you know, together we fixed it in about four hours. And wow. that was the lyric that is what you hear. That's amazing. That's fantastic. That's a great story. <laughs> that is. Yeah. That is. Well, that it, is. It, it was you know, not only a great story, but it was also... You know, it also was a, 
how amazing that I should suddenly be in a room with Keith and mm. then we should sit down, sort it out. I mean, I remember he came up with the, um, we're all someone's daughter, we're all someone's son. And that kind of changed everything going into the bridge because I can't remember what I had, but I had something else. But we, of course, had the chorus. We had You're the Voice, try and understand it, you know, make yeah. a noise and make it clear. We, we already had that and we had the whoa, 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 whoa. So we were just basically, you know, putting in some great lines. And Keith, I mean, that is a great line. We're all someone's daughter, we're all someone's son. It's a great line. Oh, it's fantastic. You know, absolutely. Yeah. You know, absolutely. So it was one of those things that just played out and now it's history. Really. Absolutely it is. Good yeah. history. Andy, uh, from what you can recall anyway, what were the, the chain of events that sort of led to your The Voice being submitted for Whispering Jack? Ah, now that I do know. I've got to, I know the story on that. Um, what happened was May of 86, I think, I came over to Australia for an Ice House tour. Mm. And I because I had only fairly recently got the publishing contract with Rondor Music, as was, and I was asking the Rondor Music people in Sydney if they had copies of my demos, of my songs, so they could be sending them out. And they said, no, they, they really didn't. And it so happened there was a big meeting of the people from Rondor Music and Alma Irving Music in the States, which was, um, you know, it's uh, Herb Alpert and Jerry Moss with the owners. So Jerry Moss was coming over to Sydney. All the people from the different offices around the world were having a big meeting in Sydney. And so I asked the head guy from London to bring my demos over so he could give them to the Sydney office. So he did that. And so then they got hold of the tapes and maybe within a day or two, they said they were going to send some to John Farnham. And then like a day or two later, they said, yeah, he's going to do this song, uh, You're the Voice. <laughs> that, so that's that's what happened. I don't know what would have happened if they didn't have the demos to send him. <laughs> he may never have heard it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And from, from our understanding as well, the, the song You're the Voice was submitted very, very late in the process, as in like they'd even had the other nine songs from the album ready. Yes. And, yes. and then when they received your song, they knew that they had an absolute gold mine, you know, and they like, well, well this yes. one has to go on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, yeah. the good thing was they'd already done Pressure Down, which mm -hmm. was written by another friend of ours, also on Rondor Music, Harry Bogdanovs. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I suppose that was going to be the first single, you know, so then the publishers call say, well, you know, uh, I know you've got Pressure Down, but we've got this other song that we think you might like. And uh, I guess they did. <laughs> but I think the album was pretty much finished up until that point, as far as they were concerned. We'll come back to the writers in a little while, but I'd like to pick up with Ross Fraser, David Hirschfelder, Gaynor and Glenn Wheatley to have them discussing the production and recording of You're the Voice. So let's pick up there. I got um, the track from Doris, who's worked, worked for Glenn and was doing some publishing. And she said, I've got a song from London. What do you think? And I said, Sound pretty good. I'll take it out to John. On while I was driving out there, and I put it on, and I turned it up pretty loud. And I went, "This is a good song," you know. I got to the garage. It made up. Got to think. I've got a really good song here. Played John player. He goes, "Yeah, that's what we want." Mm. <laughs> that's a breath. Well, John, if that's what you want to do, let's do that. Well, I, I, this story has may have been told before um, by me and others, but I think the the big thing about that song, apart from the fact that we recorded it without the permission of the writer at first. We were aware of that, but we just thought, oh, no, look, 
it'll be fine. If he hates it, you know, we'll have to pull it. But, uh, you know, we were pretty confident that he was going to like it. As soon as John sang it, after listening to the demo, we, we just looked at each other and thought, wow, this song was written for you. If you don't, we've got to do it. And, um, and then the other thing was that, you know, so the song went along and it was arranged. And, um, you know, when it came to the solo instrumental section, um, John just said, look, we've got our bagpipes. And it, our, Ross and I originally thought, really, bagpipes? But I thought, no, that actually could work. And then I had to change the key of that whole section of the song to suit the bagpipes. And changing the key to bagpipe key <laughs> made the song sound better even before the bagpipes were overdubbed. So I think it was like, again, creativity rules. If you just go with it, you can be surprised by some unexpected twists that are, make it special. I think they believed that they had a, a good album, but they didn't have the fairy dust. And um, the fairy dust presented itself in the form of You're the Voice. By the time that we found You're the Voice, which was the last song we found, but the moment it arrived in the office, I knew that we had something. It had John Farnham written all over this, and he just said, oh, I'll own this. It was quite funny because when John took three days, three days to mix You're the Voice. I mean, how any song takes three days to mix, but it was the analogue days. It was reel-to-reel tape. And Gain and I finally get the nod, I come in and hear it. We're finished. We'd been out at um, a dinner and um, I, said, I said to Glenn, I want to be there when they record your The Voice because we loved the demo. We loved it. He sang, oh, goosebumps, just thinking about it. Anyway, we, um, Ross Fraser said we're doing it tonight, so in we went. And John doesn't really like people in the studio, but it was like, well, stuff it, we're coming. <laughs> and we had a bottle of champagne, we're going to celebrate, everything was great. And they played the song. And Glenn and I looked at each other and we were like, um, well, that's, we didn't get the goosebumps. And it left me a bit flat and I didn't know how to say this to John. He said, you don't like it, do you? And we're going, well, we like the demo better. I made the mistake of falling in love with the demo and your vocal on the demo was unbelievable because you just went for it. Now you've worked it and reworked it and it just doesn't feel like it's natural anymore. He said, Right, he was angry. He was so angry. So he lit up a cigarette and he went into the studio. And all of a sudden I couldn't even see John. There was just so much smoke. I don't know how he sang with a booth full of smoke, but anyhow. And he was so angry. That's it. Okay, Ross, turn out the lights. Turn the cans up. He put the headphones on. Put it up loud and sing this again. And he sang it like I'd never heard him sing before. And I got goosebumps. That's it. That's the one, thank you. <laughs> he sang that song like the demo and um, we, had, we had the song that was You're the Voice in a haze of smoke, in a rage. <laughs> yeah. Came that song and we were like, yeah, okay, we can, we can open the champagne now. He's like, are you, you happy now, boss? And I was like, yeah, we're happy. <laughs> As we do in those days, got to put the cassette in the car and hear what it sounds like in the, in the car. Took it home in a cassette, the rough mix. And on the way home, ah, oh, that was it. We kept it and uh, that song I treat as sacred ground for John and I. I mean, uh, it's a very special song to us. 
Uh, with your other voice, we definitely cannot go past the Roger McLaughlin bass leak in this song, all right? No. Uh, this is, like, genius. And uh, this bass leak, I mean... Um, <laughs> bless him all right my dad right he had a moment uh where he was trying to remember the name of this amazing aussie song <laughs> right and yeah he, he said to me he goes what's that john farnham song again you know the one that goes like <laughs> like that <laughs> and i'm like oh what you're the voice <laughs> and he's like yeah that one yeah he just had yeah. just, obviously just had a moment yeah bless dad but mm-hmm. um <laughs> but this is a fantastic little lick. Like, you know, it's part of the intro to the song and the, the building of it at the beginning. But this just yeah. really stands out to me, the bass in this song. It's fantastic. Yeah, I agree. And hey, while we're here, why don't we actually listen to the story that Roger's got to tell? Hi, everyone. I'm Roger McLaughlin, the bass guitarist on You're the Voice. And you're listening to the Heeds the Voice podcast. With Adam Perfect. and Nigel. Yeah. Oh, nicely. Thank you. There. Thank you. Absolutely. <laughs> That's good. That's coming. Yeah, we can hear that. We can hear that. guitar become your chosen instrument by default really um my father was a piano player and he loved playing boogie woogie he had a very strong left hand and and loved driving bass and he actually bought me my first guitar which was a german hofner bass guitar it wasn't a beetle bass but it's the same pickup configuration but a bigger body and so he must have bought that when i was about 13 14 and uh, I would go out and do gigs with them. I actually have uh, recordings of me playing with my father's band, playing that bass when I was about 14. So that was the start of it. And so I was always dabbling in, in bass. And how I ended up in Australia as a bass player was I'd auditioned to do a version of Godspell in New Zealand as a bass player. And I did that little tour and thought nothing more of it. About six months later, I got an email from the musical director, Rodney Kendall, asking if I would come to Australia to do yet another tour of 
of uh, Australia with Godspell. This is long after Colin Hewitt had done it. So this was allowed me to get to Australia and I was like, it was 1974, you know, I was 20 years old and I had an opportunity to, to leave, you know, rather than go up to Christchurch or Auckland or Wellington to seek my fame and fortune, I just bypassed all that. To do a six-month tour of Australia, it was a New South Wales, Victorian country and three months stint in in uh, Western Australia, you know, in, in Perth for three months. And when I said yes to that, I drove in my car straight up to Dunedin and bought my trusty, my first real bass guitar, which is this beautiful 74 oh. jazz bass, which Look I still have. And I bought it for $400. <laughs> That's so great that you still got it. <laughs> yeah, 400 bucks. Uh, yeah. And arrived in Australia with a 100-watt Fender basement amp and a 412 cab in that bass. And strangely, that's I've still got that bass, and that's the same bass you hear on the LRB recordings that I did. It's the same bass you hear on You're the Voice. Uh, it's the same bass uh, uh, that I played at the Montreux Jazz Festival with Pyramid. So, and it's it's still a lovely old bass. It's fretless now, of course. You so know, but, that's the one. Yeah. That's the one. That's the one. That's it. Yeah. So that's how I ended up in Australia as a bass player by default. You know. Great. Yeah. Good stuff. And somewhere around, I'm trying to think when the Uncovered album was recorded, where he did help. So I remember being somewhere in a rehearsal studio and he was next door because this is after I'd been in LRB and out of LRB and then he's, he's in this rehearsal room and you kind of put, oh, it's John Farnham with a few mates, you know. Mel Logan's in there with a brand new Prophet 5, which was the envy of everyone. <laughs> And so I remember them kind of recording, um, rehearsing for that album and obviously Help and the other stuff that was on that album. Mm. And and then, of course, all of a sudden he's in, he's joined LRB, you know, as the front man. Because I, I, I'm in the wings watching all the comings and goings of various, you know, guitar players and bass players and now lead singers uh, observing all the stuff going on. Yeah. And, and, and then... David Hirschfeld, who I worked with in a jazz fusion band called Pyramid in 1983. Uh, the highlight of that was actually working at the Montreux Jazz Festival in Switzerland. We were like a jazz fusion band, kind of like a weather report band. And at the end of that tour, David Hirschfeld said, well, sorry, guys, I'm, I'm leaving the band and I'm joining Little River Band. And I'm going, oh, no, not again. You know, this band haunts me. <laughs> So of course you know, <laughs> that whole playing to win era, and uh, and then all of a sudden they're in the studio recording this album, Whispering Jack, which I was kind of aware of because I was doing a lot of sessions around that time, and uh, so quite often you'd hear stuff coming out of Studio One at AAV in, in Bank Street, South Melbourne, and. Uh, which then kind of leads to me getting a phone call saying, can you come in and play some bass for a track for John Farnham? And apparently that was David Hirschfelder that had suggested that. They said, oh, we've got this track, you know, we, well, we we don't know what we want, but we'll play it to you and see what you come up with. And of course they hit the button and out through the speakers came this song, which was semi-mixed and it was You're the Voice. And I'm just like, I've hit the floor going, man, this song is going to be huge. It was so obvious when you heard that chorus and it hit, and I just went, oh, oh wow, this song's going to be huge. And, and here's little old Roger in the studio about to put some bass on it, you know. 
So it was quite a thrill because it was just me, uh, Ross Fraser, the, the producer, David Hirschfeller wasn't there, a young Doug Brady, engineering, and, of course, Johnny Farnham's there, you know. G'day, mate. Hey, come. Yeah. Oh, do you like my new song? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I'll keep talking about that if you like. That, that They sure. played the track and, and it was obvious they had struggled to put bass on it because the kick drum is so huge in that song. You know, that boom, boom, boom. It takes up so much bottom end. There's no room sonically for, for bass down there. So they really didn't have any bass on it because this big kick drum kind of carried the whole weight of the song. Uh, so, look, they, they wandered up to the uh, – they, they rolled up to the – so, well, let's have a look at the – We I remember them saying, I don't think we need anything in the verses. Let's just get up to the chorus and see what happens. So I'd heard the song and I'd heard that that kind of, uh, what would I say, the kind of Celtic bagpipey solo, you know, which kind of kind of invoked that kind of, you know, that Scottish kind of, you know, droning thing. So when the chorus hits, the first chorus, down the barrel of a gun, the drum fill, and I thought, well, I better play something, and I played down the barrel of a gun. Then I played. So I'm planning playing. Playing that sort of bass line. Oh, so I'm up in the middle register of the bass, leaving room for the kick drum. And so I did a couple of choruses and I said, man, we really love what you're doing. It's great. You know? uh, and this all happened real quick, you know, uh, and in reality, that's what great session players do. You walk in, you hear something, and you just kind of you trust your judgment and, and deliver the first thing that comes to mind, and it's usually the best idea I've discovered. So some of my greatest moments have been the first take. In fact, I'd got into a habit of when I'd go to sessions to play on people's records, I'd go, look, let me have a bit of a run-through, and I'll just throw a few ideas around, but make sure you record it. And and so they did. And anyway, so getting back to Farnham, that we rolled up to the. He said, "Let's have a look at the first verse. Maybe there's something you could put in there." And so the, it, yeah, as you know, the song starts, hand claps, and the piano comes in. So it's like about eight bars have gone past, and there's, I've played nothing. And I thought, well, I better play piano. And I thought I better play something. And I played. Then the first verse starts there, you know. So I played this kind of at that and a few other licks right up to the point where they had to drop out a record because this is recorded on tape. Remember, it was analog. Yeah, analog. Yeah, tape. So you yeah. know, I've got they've got one track for me. They found some space on one track. So I played right up. Uh, down the barrel of a gun, and of course they had to stop recording because it was going to drop into where I had already played the first chorus and so they st and I remember this vividly they stopped the tape and and like Ross Fraser and Farnham's behind me 
and the engineer Doug's there and he stopped and I kind of swung around like, excuse my back like that. And I went, how was that? And that, and the looks on their faces, they said, that is unbelievable. That's incredible. It's a keeper. Like that's it. I said, and I said, can I double it? And you know what I mean by doubling to yep. make it sound thicker. Yep. Can I yep. double it? And they said, no, 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 don't touch it. It's, it's absolutely perfect. So it was it was an improvisation from me. Who knows why I played? Ba -da -ba -da -ba -da -da. It's like maybe it was a lick. Maybe it was a lick <laughs> yeah, in yeah. my arsenal. Yeah. It's it's very uh, uh, bluesy, Jacko Pistorius yeah. inspired. You know, someone said to me years later, you know, that's a bit of a Richie Blackmore lick, and he played me a song that, and I love Deep Purple, Richie, and, he, and Richie plays this blues lick. Ba -da 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 you know, it's. So it's all of those influences. Who knows? Yeah. 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 Uh, Roger, just before you actually mentioned um, a fretless bass guitar, right? So for, yes. the, for our listeners that might not know the difference between standard and a fretless bass, are you able to sort of give a, I a can, bit of an yeah. answer there? Look, a regular bass, look, if you look at this, and I know you podcast people can't see this, but when you look at the fretboard on a bass, you'll see these shiny silver things across the fingerboard, and they're called frets. And so when you go to play a fretted bass, you just stick your finger anywhere between those two frets and press against the fret. And so uh, it just means that you're going to play perfectly in tune every time okay. you know, be, because yeah. they are set to be in the right place. Mm -hmm. So a fretless bass guitar, it's not unlike a double bass. And so it's sometimes called a slide bass. So, so when you take the frets out, you suddenly realize that you've got really sloppy technique as a bass player. And so now you have to put your fingers exactly where the frets would have been. Right. Otherwise you're going to sound like, uh, as opposed to if I played. Now, if I don't put my fingers in the right spot, it'll sound like. Oh yeah. So it, it really sorts out your intonation. So now you've got to put your fingers. exactly where the frets would have been. So you can, one of the greatest compliments I've ever had is in the middle of a session, I've been playing fretless for some time and I've just been playing stuff like that. So I'm just playing, playing notes and it just sounds like a jazz bass guitar on the back pickup. And yeah. then I played something like, I must've gone. So I, started sliding in and out of notes and the guys jeez oh, you've been playing a fretless bass all this time and i didn't know and i said well thank you that means i'm playing it in tune yeah exactly <laughs> you know <laughs> so yeah. the fundamental difference is that there are no frets but see it allows you to do some wonderful things yeah. so the other thing that happens is yes you can slide into notes so you can do that and then this lick the second one is sliding down and then and then there's a third one as well isn't yeah. it yeah now the other thing that happens is this is that you can now add vibrato like a violin or a cello so as opposed to playing i can play So, uh, vibrato. 
So it makes it sound very lyrical, you know. Mm. All these slides and little things like uh, harmonic slides, which yeah. are hard to do, you know. Little licks like that. So that's the fundamental difference. It is kind of warmer and I don't know. It's 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 kind of like my singing voice. Yeah, I'm not a great singer, but you know, uh, yeah, you're the voice lick, for instance, is kind of you know, you kind of want to scat along with it. So absolutely, yeah, that's what it does. Yeah. And of course, all these nicks and chips help make it sound better. You got to take the pick guard off. It sounds even better when you take the pick guard off a of jazz. Beautiful. Right? Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really that album was about Hirschfelder and his samples and, and Prophet Five. Like, yeah, you know, the kick. Did I tell you the kick drum on "You're the Voice" is actually the a sample of a Porsche car door slamming. Mm. <laughs> yeah, <It's> amazing. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the charm of "You're the Voice," the fact that it is programmed and. Duck, 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 all those kind of really, yeah, and the fake sax samples and stuff. And even a lot of the guitar parts are, are actually Hirschfelder, you know. I, mean, I think Brett Gussed's playing a little bit of guitar in your other voice, but way back in the mix at the end, you yeah. can hear him soloing a bit. Mm -hmm. and, and apart from singers, you see, the sax solo on that is Hirschfelder on a so, yeah, you know, yeah. so yeah, on yeah, the tour, look, he played the solo. Yeah, yeah, I love the yeah. 80s, man. I remember hearing my first drum machine, and I just thought, this is really cool. I really embrace that technology, even though I love playing. I was in a band called Short Circuit with Trevor Courtney and Lisa Edwards, and, and we were like, we're a, a full on programmer. He was a drummer, and I was a bass player, but we programmed the bass and drums and yeah. punched around stage with remote keyboards playing keyboard parts. Yeah, so cool. yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I love the sound. I'm, I, I always has always have loved technology. I mean, I love craft work. I remember hearing Autobahn for the first time. I went, man, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I've never really shied away from that whole yo know, Thomas Dolby and and that whole English revol revolution of program music. I think it's fantastic. It's a little bit overused these days, you know. Uh, and, you know, I don't get calls to go out and play bass very often because people program it, you know, mm -hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. But I don't mind Whispering Jack. I, I think it's it's a real uh, a product of the times. And it's the first CD to ever be released in, it is, in yeah. Australia, which is yeah. incredible. And, yeah, look, you know, the technology back then was a bit – the analogue to digital converters were a bit gnarly, so it does sound a little – Honky, you know, a little it, bit. Nah. I I agree with you. Um, when it got remastered, in, uh, mainly in two thousand six, I think uh, it did get a significant sound boost. Uh, but the yeah. original CD from the eighties yeah. does sound a little bit old school. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. Not old school, just a bit. Ooh, but but then again, I go back and listen to a CD of uh, Michael Jackson, and I go, man, that sounds a bit honky and gnarly. You know. Yeah. I've actually got a a a vinyl. A remix vinyl that was done in America of Whispering Jack, which is really interesting on vinyl. And I remember hearing, listening to that, thinking that sounds a bit warmer. They actually got the bass up in the mix a bit more. Well, from memory, that is something we discussed before. Um, and I actually had a version of that to just sample here uh, very quickly. Ooh, yeah. Nigel Ella's presenting it says. 
Oh, this is the American mix. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bass a little bit up in the mix with a bit yeah. more reverb on it. Yeah. You're the bloody voice. It's a great song. It's a great tune. You know, um, <laughs> I think it's look. It, it's there's so many things work for that album. I think it's it was a really modern sounding recording. The whole style of it, the fact that they chose to re record uh, program stuff, uh, and a great song, and, and an album full of great songs. Really, I mean, he just couldn't miss. And and you know, it was like it was like the population were just willing. John Farnham to have a, a wonderful comeback and, and to come back with vengeance. The t like the planets just lined up for him. Let's face it, you know, it was just everything about that album, the times, um, you know, Australia was ready for the relaunch of John Farnham. Basically, I, I, you know, I just think that's who knows why some things are hits and some things aren't. But I think a, a bunch of great songs and and you know beautifully mixed and recorded. And very talented people working on it as well. Yeah. That helps. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's the other thing. You know, he surrounded himself with some very fine musicians. And I think, you know, and I don't think enough credit was ever given to David Hirschfelder. Um, he should have been uh, credited as as a producer of that album, and he's not. Mm. You know, mm. uh, that album wouldn't have sounded anything like that if he had not been involved. Yeah. absolutely bet my bottom dollar on it having worked with david for all those years in pyramid you know and he's responsible for the sound of playing to win yeah. that whole feel the keyboard thing, yeah. yeah yeah uh yeah. he's he's got the midas touch david hirsch and, and he's gone on to do amazing film music so i, I think yeah. that's part of the reason why that album was so damn successful and, and the ones after hmm. yeah Hirschfelder. um He's a, you know, I don't use this word lightly, but he is a bit of a musical genius, David Hirsch. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it was really, really enjoyable talking to Roger. Yeah. I mean, what a joy and what a character as well. Uh, we can't thank him enough for his time and his contributions. That's so right. let's pick it up with the writers where they talk about their initial reactions after hearing John's recording of You're the Voice. At that time, there was some suggestion that perhaps the writers weren't impressed with the idea that John was going to record you're the voice. So can we pick up with you, Chris, so that you can tell us about your thoughts when you first heard the news that John was going to record You're the Voice? Um, you know, I can't even remember how he communicated in those days. I think I got a fax from um, Rondor Music in yeah. America, who I was signed to, saying, um, yeah, we've got a cover for You're the Voice. It's John Farnham. And I went, um, <laughs> no. You know, Sadie, the cleaning lady. I don't, you know, I really don't. And and you know, John was very upset that I say this because I don't know whether it offends him for some reason. But if you can understand me coming from New Zealand, where that song was, well, how would you describe that song? How would um, you guys describe it? Saccharin lollipop. <laughs> yeah, not not was, uh, it was like nineteen sixty-seven. Yeah, it was like uh, bubblegum. <laughs> It was yeah. bubblegum. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's total. Yeah. It's total bubblegum. 
Yeah. Yeah. So here, I that's the only thing I'd heard from John. I know you mentioned some other songs, but really I hadn't heard anything else but that. And I just couldn't imagine that at all. So I sent probably a fax back and said, you know, no, really, you know, this is a huge hit. We all believed it was a hit song. We really believed in it. So I sent a thing back saying, you know, not really. And um, then they sent a fax back to me saying, you know, actually against the rules. Well, they've recorded it already um, because really they had to get a permission to record it from us. Yeah. Will you listen to it? And I said, yeah, of course I'll listen to it. I got it and I heard it. And I went, this is brilliant. This is mm. absolutely fantastic. He's kept absolutely everything from the demo that we loved. And he's added some things that are fantastic as well. And so I said, of course, it's brilliant. And John, he, he sang it just like I would have liked to have sung it, or I did sing it myself, you know. And there was nothing that I didn't like about it. Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Really, it was just fantastic. We heard it and we all said, yeah, brilliant. Go for it. And I'm yeah. so pleased we did. Well, at that time, because like I said, I hadn't had my publishing deal very long. And anybody doing any of my songs would have been extremely exciting anyway. <laughs> so, um, but the first thing I heard was that it was Little River Band were doing the song. I didn't know that he had left and gone solo. They just said Little River Band are doing it. I thought, oh, well, that's cool. I've heard of them. That's really good. Um, but, you know, later I heard that it was John Farnham. I thought, well, okay, I, apparently he's a big star here. So, yeah, that works for me. But as I said, I would have been very easily pleased with almost anybody doing the song. Yeah. Um, yeah, really. it, it sounds like, um, Andy, your story is a little different to Chris. Uh, yeah, because like you mentioned before, you didn't really know about the Johnny Farnham era. So, no, right. so for you, more so than with Chris, who obviously had that insight, for you, yeah. it sounds like it was a little yeah. bit more of like, oh, no, 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 that, that, could, that could be cool. Maybe even a little bit more open-minded. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, so I, yeah. Was, I was very happy with it, but I didn't know I was going to need to be so, quite so excited about it at that point. Yeah. But I was excited, without a doubt. I mean, when I really got excited was when I first heard it. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Exactly. The one thing is that I was, you know, writing at home one day with mm -hmm. another co-writer and Andy Conta called me from Australia and it, this was about maybe seven months after we recorded it. I knew that he was doing it, but I'd forgotten about it. And uh, Andy said, are you sitting down? And I said, okay. And I sat down and said, what? And he said... You're the voice is uh, at a bullet at number six, and it's going to be number one next week. And I was like, oh, 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 I'm going to have a hit. Oh, all right then. Okay, fine. And I was quite happy and very flattered and that, you know, we'd done something. It was my first um, ever song that got anywhere that made it to that point. So I was very <laughs> chuffed at the time. Have you yourself ever performed the song You're the Voice? Yes, I, I, when I was uh, back in London in the day, back in the late 80s, yep. um, I would, uh, and the early 90s, I would um, do some songwriting circles mm -hmm. and it would always end up in my repertoire. And um, I did pretty much the same version as John did back then. And uh, in fact, my voice... It's in the same key for my voice as it is for uh, Chris and for John. So 
um, and I could pull on that uh, put on that rock sound. So it it sounds pretty similar to everything else you've heard. It would be very little variation at that point. Later on, I did try and do my own version of it in a recording studio. I was just fiddling around with a, uh, some new toy that I'd bought, and I started tracking my voice and making a very um, African version of it with lots of voices chanting and stuff, but mm-hmm. it never saw the light of day. Um, I have a couple of times uh, for charity things. So I've done it a few times, but it's not an easy one to sing, especially when you've heard John Farnham and Chris Thompson singing it. Uh, you know, <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, you know, maybe a little, a, I, little, a little intimidating. <laughs> a little intimidating, yes, yes. I think, yeah. I mean, I can do, I can sing certain things, but you know, that's probably not one of my best. Yeah. <laughs> Andy, have you ever met, worked, or performed with John Farnham? Um, I've met him at least once. I've never worked or performed with him, but I've met him once at a club in Sydney, and I don't remember which one. It might have been somewhere on Oxford Street or something. I can't remember now. That was a while back. But, um, yes, I did. And somewhere I've got a photo of the two of us. And also the bass player from the Easy Beat, Stick Diamond. So him and me and John Farnham, I've got a picture of the three of us somewhere. Um, so that was the only time I met him. But he seemed very pleasant and uh, all the rest of it. <laughs> So I was glad to at least have been able to meet him once. Ah, yes, I met him once. Um, I think I was touring as a background vocalist for, um, I think it was the Eurythmics at the time, I'm not Mm -hmm. sure. We were on the same bill as Tina Turner. Um, But anyway, what happened was I got in the elevator from the the green room to the uh, dressing room or something. I remember being all dressed up. And I get in the elevator, turn around and two really big bodyguards and John Farnham walk into the elevator. The doors close and I go, "Um, uh, excuse me, are you John Farnham? And his bodyguards kind of stepped in. And he looked at me, said, yeah, I said, Maggie Ryder. And he just pushed them aside and he gave me the hugest hug. Because by that time, You're the Voice was was a really massive hit. Yeah. yeah. And he'd never met me. I'd never met him. That's the only time I ever met him. John. Yeah, I've met John. Um, not a lot of times, but I have met him. Um, yeah, I think, but performing, the only, only thing I did performing with John was... We, we were on the same television show in Germany and um, it was live and uh, I just decided I'm just going to go on and sing at the end. So I kind of pushed past the security guys and went and sang with the background chorus. But that's the only time I've performed with John. Um, wow, yeah. We've sat down and talked a couple of times, but really, um, yeah, I, yeah, it's just wasn't because we were on different you know sides of the planet it was it was always very difficult to try and meet up i think he's still annoyed with me for saying he couldn't do your the voice <laughs> because it was because of sadie the cleaning lady so i don't know i mean if john ever listens to this i'd love to just have a chat about stuff because you know we're both getting old and and time passes too quickly and it would be nice but i'm going to be in Australia sometime because I'm, I'm stopping live performance, but I will be doing a whole bunch of other stuff. 
So I hopefully get to Australia and, and, and get together with John if oh, possible. Yeah, I hope you do as well. Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. Very exciting. It's really, really interesting to hear how in the structure of a song, when you've got a bunch of you co-writing, which writer comes up with each particular little element of the song, particularly a song that we've obviously known very well. Yeah. You know, right. So it's really, it's really interesting to hear because one of the questions that I had coming up was if you could inform us a little bit about how you decide when you're listing, say, the four writers of You're the Voice. Do you have a particular order that you have to list yourself based on a percentage of a contribution or something like that? Well, I think that can vary with depending upon who it is that's doing it. Some yeah. people have definite ways that they'll split it up. Um, we never do that. We always split it evenly like everything we did with Chris. And it wasn't intended that there would be four writers when we started doing it. It was me and him. It was just we got stuck. So then we got we got Maggie in. And then Chris just happened to run into Keith. So I think, um, you know, between Chris and Keith, they came up with the lyrics. Um, but, yeah, because we all worked on it, and if any one of us had not been there doing what they were doing, the song wouldn't have happened would have been the same. So we would just consider everybody's got an equal share. And it's always been like that. In fact, Andy came to me and said, you know, you should have more than us because you did the music with us and then you did the lyric with Keith. So really you should have a half of the song. But the thing is, these people were my friends. You know, you sometimes feel that it's important to always be friends. And if something were to happen as it did, and it was to become a huge hit. I think it was great that there were four people and we divided it in a quarter, you know, because we've had lots of situations where we've had to make up our mind about do we let somebody do this or do we not, or do we use it for the advertisement like they used in Australia for going out and voting, which is you know one of the reasons we wrote the song. So... You know, it was nice that everybody had the same share so people could say, I agree, I don't agree, and it all counted for the same. So are you saying, Chris, that the writers get a say in regards to that? Like, um, you know, you all were able to make that decision yourself and say that, Oh, like, you know... we still make decisions about everything. Oh, that's great. You know, we, we just had um, something come up for us that was political, and that was the one thing that we decided on right at the very beginning was that we we would not allow the song to be used for anything political. Now mm. you might think that goes against um, what we just what we used it as an advertisement for people to go out and vote, but it wasn't to go out and vote for the Labour Party or for the Conservatives yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or for the Green Party. It was just go out and vote because your voice is important. So that you know that was the kind of thing that you got to talk about and make sure. But it's we just a, had this thing that was political, very political. And, um, you know, everybody just went, no, we can't. That's something we can't let the song be used for. So, yeah, um, yeah I mean, and, yeah, writers always have a say in, you know, how a song can be used unless they've sold their publishing. And if they've sold their publishing, then they have no say in anything. Let's move our attention to some of the other guests and hear about their thoughts on You're the Voice. First, we'll hear from Brett Garset, followed by Peter Lothian from The Brastards. And I think John has a fantastic way of introducing our next couple of guests. So we'll just hear from John, hey? On the drums! <laughs> Angus, the mongrel, Bacho! <laughs> Queen, Fenetta Fields! 
the band, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Lindsay Field. And following them, we'll hear from Ross Fraser and Chong Lim. Any particular memories of that one, Brett? I don't think I'm really doing anything in the verses. We couldn't really come up with anything there. But just in the chorus, that old, uh, remember I detuned uh, the guitar so I could do a low octave and go down to the low E flat. And, uh, and I thought that really pumped up the chorus. And then the, the, my favourite memory is the outro guitar solo because I go for an extremely high F note and the string breaks. I break a string. You can hear it break. <laughs> you can and hear it kept, break. Yeah, right. There's a very high note and you hear it just abruptly stop. And uh, I just keep playing because I had the guitar set up where it wouldn't go out of tune if it broke. So, yeah, many fond memories when I hear that because I remember it happening in the studio. Fascinating. And I will be sure to tune in to listen to that again. I think you notice the guitar mostly through the choruses at the end. You definitely Mm. hear it, even though it's low in the mix in the background. Yeah. Another thing I do have to mention uh, musically about that is I realise that the sampling that was used for your the voice, the drum sounds that was actually sampled from, I think it was a car door slamming. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Russ Fraser, uh, the producer, sampled a lot of this stuff. Well, that was by the the Fairlight sampler, which was new then. And in my Sydney days, I actually did the Fairlight sampling, like for trombone. Um, nice. Where we went into the studio, and we actually sampled all the the horns. Um, so there's a trumpet section, trombone section, saxophones, French horns. And it was an agonising session because we had to play every note together perfectly from the lowest to the highest. So I was, <laughs> the MD was standing like this. Bop. <laughs> Bop. Now we've got to do that note again. Oh. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, like this. So I think this relates to like the Whispering Jack that you're the voice that was really like the beginning of the sampling age, not just with other sounds, but with horns as well. So you could see a change on the horizon with how instruments were going to be used. Mm. We weren't going to get called for jingles anymore. Well, we were, but not all the time because it would be done on one person using synths or keys or whatever. So, Mm. So that was a definite change too. So really... I think the Whispering Jacks was, was a culmination of that. The big tom-tom opening to You're the Voice, that evolved. It didn't always happen like that for me, but it's, it's now part of the song. So, it's, you know, it, it does, they do, they do definitely evolve. Um, you're the Voice. I, I went from the, the Australia's reaction to it. Mm-hmm. It was just a song to me until I saw Australia's reaction to it. Then it became a big thing to me. Mm-hmm. It was like an anthem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Very much so. That's what I get. That's what I got from that song. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Everybody sings through your voice. I see it on uh, commercials and uh, mm. uh, other people are singing it as well. So it became more than just whispering, Jack. Yeah. Yeah. And by the by the time I left, I kept saying, "If I sing your voice one more time, I'm gonna <laughs> scream." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And I, I can well appreciate that that is one of the challenges for any performer. It's all well and good, yeah. The, for us, the audience, we go along to a performance and we get to experience it. It's wonderful. But the idea of having to perform the music just so repetitively, um, I can appreciate that um, it can become quite a chore. Yeah. It, it, hmm. it became an anthem, not just a song. Yeah. On the on the set list, it was yeah. it was more it became more than that. We've talked ourselves over the life of the interviews that we've conducted, and uh, you're the voice is certainly the track that transcends the album itself, and it's got a life of its own, separate from Whispering Jack. The thing about that song, when you listen to the lyric, and when you sing it from your heart, it's all power. It's all righteousness. You know, it's just so strong. You know, not loud strong, but just it has such a huge presence. And it's dealing with the, the, the core of a human being and what's real. And it's, you know, in all the years that I've been doing it, it's never lost that. You know, the, the time we did it at that concert, you mentioned the fire thing mm -hmm. in Sydney, which was the last time we played. Yep. We had the young... Indigenous lad doing the it's the stuff and language, and that was just beautiful. But the righteousness for me is is when you're you're singing that chorus, it's just oh, it's just power. That's what it and is. Yeah, the Americans tried to kill it. Oh yeah, and they successfully have done that a few times. <laughs> <laughs> when they did the the American mix. Oh yeah. Mm because they decided that in their wisdom in the record company in America that uh, it has to be tailored for our market, man, mm. of just bullshit, you know. But Sorry. but we somehow, the, the way that the power ratios worked, they got their way, and we were on a bus going from Sydney to Newcastle when the, the tape, a cassette tape, that's how long ago, was delivered to the bus and we got on the bus and then the tape was put on and you could just see people sinking lower and lower in their seats. It's like, oh, no, oh, no. And you just have, you have something that was so magnificent in its naivety in a way, but also in its sophistication, was totally gutted by ignorant pricks who had no idea what they were doing and were just trying to put their own imprimatur on it. And, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you were talking about the power of the song before Lindsay as well. Like they decided that a good move with that US mix would be to remove the backing vocalists from the chorus which is not a good move when you've got a group of people all singing in unison this amazing chorus, right? And then putting John Farnham's voice on top of them. It's just beautiful. That's what it is. It's beautiful power. <laughs> and the yeah. American mix, they decided to remove the backing vocalists and John is doing his thing. John, John can sing anything, all right? But like without the backing vocalists behind him, a lot of the power is lost behind that amazing song, you know? And uh, I agree with you. I think it's a travesty that 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 um, that mix. <laughs> it really is. I'm not surprised it didn't work in America. No, well, it was just it was just really sad. You know, we yeah. never. I don't know. If we ever really talked about it again after that. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, we the song evolved as we played it. I mean, as well, we started singing a lot of three part harmony those last choruses, 
not because we were bored, but because we were trying to make it richer. And it worked, you know, particularly in later iterations where we had, you know, six singers in the band, apart from John. You know, the, the strength and the, the richness of the vocal yeah. group. And it was a group, you know, six really good singers doing what they were told. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard to find out who was doing that, whether mm. it was a mastering engineer, but I can tell you this much. After this, after Whispering Jack was banging and it was going and every, you know, it was really great, the American company wanted to put it out in America. Yeah. But they wanted another producer to do work on it. This is, this is your, this is your voice. Mm. And it came back with no claps on it. Yeah. I pushed really, really hard for them to go back to that original Mm. and the song became a minor hit after that. First time they put it out, it didn't work at all, and it had no claps on it. Yeah, I didn't take it very well. I, you know, I said, "Put it back on, put it back on." And I'm talking to the American yeah. guys. So they did, and the, the, the song went out again, and it, yeah, it, it got into number one in a half a dozen states. You know, it was very close to being a big, big hit. So they're the two reasons why. Pisses me off. You're the voice. It's pretty well the claps, and as you said, they lost the um, they had lost the tapes, so I couldn't get to that sound. But a lot of people have tried re- re- recreating that clap, but you know, there's a clap and there's a clap, and so I, um, you know, be- before computers, we were using these hardware sequences. Like I was using this Roland sequencer called MC500. You have to type everything in and numbers and all that and and so i i got my cd player and sampled one clap and then recreated a clap on my key into the sequencer and i listened to hear where it panned and i panned it every note was moving around like like the record you know like that you know i recreated that and it's essentially that the bagpipes the piano the pads, and that's about it. And so, you know, the pad was, you know, sounds simple, but it's pretty difficult to to recreate what he did because it comes from the era of analog synthesizers. I, I, I'm, I'm sure you, you know you being music, musical will know the difference between analog synthesizers and digi- digital synthesizers. So I had to recreate all that, and then I left a piano for myself to play, and then. You you know it's a pretty sparse song is ca- carried by the claps and 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 once you put the claps in it it just you know that's the song it's glues you, you know so and I thought I'll, I'll I'll add some technology in it and that's the song you you know listen you listen carefully that the extra things in it and and like that stuff you know all that stuff and uh, you know whilst I pay homage to the song make it exactly the same but I add little subtleties yeah. One of my favourite things that you did with your other voice, Chong, was at the, again, the Whispering Jack 25th series of shows was the way that it was the only, it was the, I think it's the only tour that John's ever done in which he had the, 
the confidence and the guts to do his famous song twice in the course of the set. <laughs> you know, you never, yeah. did, you never ever did that again, and he never did it beforehand. Yeah. But it felt it felt so appropriate for that show, considering that it was a celebration of the album Whispering Jack. Um, but what I loved about it, Chong, was the way that when you did it as part of the sequence earlier in the show, it was very much like the album version. But then when you came back for the encore, you did your updated version with the Angus Birchall solo and the elevated drums, like, you know, the boom, 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 like that. Like, it was just fantastic. Well, well, that boom, boom, boom is a combination of Angus's toms and a Porsche door sample. Luckily, David Hirschfelder had kept the sample, and I, I, I got it from him. It's, it's, a, it's an innocuous sound, like a door slam, like yeah, that. But yeah. in song, it's, it's, in, it's huge. Yeah. And, and, and thank you for... for uh, noting that I, I've forgotten already. I've forgotten. I've done so many tours. And, and I, I remember when they wanted to do it twice, I, 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 I said to Ross Razor, we've got to get, get around this. We can't play the song twice. And we, we went through agony trying to figure it out. But I, I'm glad it worked for you. We think it's really strange to do the song twice, you know, but we've got to do it twice because, you know, that's the climax of the show. And, and and because we we wanted to do the songs in order of the album, yes. So we had we wanted to close the song with, with the show with your other voice as well. So there was a lot of philosophical questions we asked ourselves. Yeah, if you omitted it, if you omitted it earlier in the show and sort of went around it and then brought it back at the end, it, it would have it wouldn't have felt right somehow. You yeah, know what I mean, like because yeah. you were doing the album, so yeah, it just worked. Like and and the fact that you did an updated version when you came back. And it just—it felt like yeah. the end of the show. It was just so well done. And, and, and this reminds me of the the closing ceremonies of the Commonwealth Games in Melbourne. We did a full-on version of "You're the Voice," like drum line players playing like that, and and then all these people playing bagpipes, walking in, and then slowly the song started. But John is, you know, he, he he's not very good with his memory, and and so he came in <laughs> slightly wrong. Was out of sync by about two beats or something. Yeah. I know. And yeah, I, and I, I put this video and... up on YouTube, Chong, about with this footage and 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 made mention of the of your facial expression uh, when when John's that, timing is off. It's hilarious. It's that's right. Hilarious. <laughs> I, was to, I was totally panicking. I was trying to to reach Lindsay and say, Lindsay, tell him. You you know because Lindsay's standing next to him, but Lindsay was swept it in the moment and was <laughs> you know having a good time, and I was panicking. And and the next day. Local radio, apparently someone said, who's that guy who looks like an accountant behind him? He looked panicky. You know, that's me, the accountant. <laughs> Very amusing. <laughs> it, is, it is brilliant. It is absolutely brilliant. But yeah, and, and certainly from my perspective, I look at it and go, um, I love the constant evolution of the songs like that. So the fact that for that closing ceremony, you're the voice was um, again, reimagined and extended on, you know, more than what we had become familiar with. It's another interpretation of you're the voice as a song. And the fact that it was extended and, you know, it's a fantastic way of hearing something that you're so familiar with, but hearing it new again. Okay, I want to move back to the writers now, where we raise the discussion with them about any other recordings of You're the Voice. 
Um, speaking of different versions, in 2019, a young Indigenous Australian man named Mitch Tambo performed a bilingual version of You're the Voice. Um, can you share your thoughts about Mitch Tambo's version of the song? Yeah, I absolutely love his version of the song. Um, I actually hadn't been aware of it until you pointed it out a few months ago. And I listened to it over and over. I just loved it. I think that's where I was going when I tried to do my own version of the song. Uh, it was more in that direction than it was the rock version, the anthemic. It was still anthemic, no matter how you do that song, but more of a, um, a tribal feel to it, which I love, that whole world music thing. That's what I'm into. There are many versions of You're the Voice uh, available, particularly on YouTube, but there's international versions sung in other languages. Uh, are there any other particular versions of You're the Voice that capture your interest and attention? Um, yeah, you know, um, back then it was called Rondo, now it's called Concord. The publishing um, house often sends me versions of the songs uh, maybe before they become public because I have to approve my share of them, should I say. And uh, one of them was, again, it was a tribal version. It was fantastic and I just was all thumbs up. But I can't remember who it was. It was just fabulous. And it was along the same Mitch Tambo kind of flavour. Yeah, one of the great versions I heard was the... Um... The Aborigine boy, Mitch Tambo, who um, he's probably a man. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I heard it first um, on the program, Australia's Got Talent, I think that's what it was, um, because they needed our permission to use it on that program. So um, not I didn't have to hear his version, but they just said, you know, Mitch Tambo wants to do this, you know. And um, then afterwards, my publisher... Lee McDonald, she she sent it to me, said, you really should hear this. It's really, really fantastic. And it was really fantastic. And then moving on from there, it became the pitch song for the Brisbane Olympic Committee, pitching, you know, the, the chance to have the Games in, I think it's 2032 or something like that. And it was used for that. It wasn't, it was a newly recorded version. And it was fantastic. He sang it really marvelously well. But the great thing that I felt about it was that that's so wonderful that he did that different language version of it, but kept the English chorus, which was wonderful for me because it, it really, well, it really showed how much people love that chorus enough to not bother to translate it and just have it as a piece whereas the, the verses really suit how he sings. He's got such a lovely lilt to his voice and, you know, and, and the language really fits around um, the melody. Fantastic, really. Have you heard Mitch's version of the song? And what... I have. Yeah. Love it. It's fantastic. And I was, the whole idea of doing it in, in the Aboriginal language I thought was great, but then when I actually heard it, fantastic. Fantastic. And I've, uh, there's a, a Maori version now as well, I've heard, and all sorts of other ones. They're all great, but somehow the Aboriginal one was, was you know, yeah, that was very impressive. Yeah, yeah it's Love a fantastic it. version. Yeah, it really is. Oh, it is.
Very it much. is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Over the years, Andy, did you hear some of John's own rearrangements of the songs, such as the novelty swing version in the mid-90s? Have you heard any of them? Uh, uh, yes, I did hear the swing version. Not a huge fan. <laughs> it's I not would, very popular. Yeah. It's, oh, um, really? Oh, it's not yeah. just us then. That's good. I have to say, though, Andy, there was a performance on Hey Hey It's Saturday um, mm-hmm. where they did a mashup of songs and they actually went from the uh, conventional version of You're the Voice into the swing version to round mm. it out and finish it off. So, oh, boy. much as it um, can be like nails on the chalkboard, to a much lesser degree when done as that composite performance. Yeah. Much less affronting. Yeah, the contrast. To the, yeah, to the listener. But, that, um, but, but Andy's right, Nigel, like the contrast almost makes it worse. Because <laughs> you're hearing the amazing original version and then it cuts into the swing version. Yeah, yeah. The other way around might have been all right. Over the years, Chris, uh, did you ever hear some of John's own rearrangements of the song, such as the novelty yeah. swing version that he yeah. did in the mid-90s? Hated it. Hated it. <laughs> <laughs> so did I, actually. I, I wasn't a fan like, at all. I couldn't was... believe it. I, I just couldn't believe it. I thought, how is that possible? Yeah. yeah. And Maggie, um, did you hear the swing version that he um, put out as I well? I did. I did not like that. Yeah, join the club. Uh, No, I did not like that. This song is not designed to be a swing song. Um, It just sounded cheap and nasty and cheesy and, you know, I mean, the majority. So, Adam, one of the things that I was quite surprised to hear, but I do think that it has its place in the discussion of the song, Mm-hmm. Um, for me, something that is of interest are the people that sit there and say that they don't like it. Which has um, got to be few and far between, right? Well, only because we choose to mix in circles that celebrate it rather than... Mm. I don't seek out the people that don't like John Farnham and I don't seek out the people that dislike the song. But I've said before, you know, I'm raised in a family where people are not particularly Farnham fans. Yeah. And They've never expressed a total dislike for the song You're the Voice. But I think that people like this song, as might be the only song of John's that they that they like as well. So, you know, um, yeah. But um, in talking to Chris Thompson, I did ask him a question about how he copes with people who would tell him that they don't like the song. 
So let's listen to what he had to say. Well, I've never had anybody that I've talked to disliking your the voice. I mean, everybody, everybody has said, you know, that's a fantastic song and, mm. you know, it must be great to be a part of it and, and, um, and share it with the audience every time you play, which is exactly what it is. I've never had anybody say they didn't like that. I've had people say they didn't like other songs of mine. Um, <laughs> you know, I've, I've got, you know, I've written so, so many songs, most of which probably should be in the dustbin. Um, but I've got, you know, I've probably got 20 or 30 songs that I, I really, really believe in. Um, and, and, you know, and I keep f trying to find people to send them to and things, but, you know, I haven't really had people say they don't like my music. So moving on from that, the thing that really surprised me was the segment that I heard on ABC Radio with presenter Sarah MacDonald, where she interviewed Steve Kilby, the lead singer of the band The Church. And right. I've got it here for us to listen to. So let's begin by listening to what Steve had to say. Steve Kilby is here. He is the lead singer of The Church and uh, he is your music teacher tonight. Let's move on to the songs that he can't stand. Yeah. This is one of them. We're all someone's daughter. He's just ripped his headsets off. <laughs> just wow, that was quick. Tom oh. Farnham. Oh, that's yeah. not Australian. Heresy, heresy. What an. Uh, uh, sorry, I hate it. I hate pompous, pseudo meaningful call to arms and the bagpipe solo. I almost swore then. Um, oh, just, just horrible. I'm so, so overplayed and. Of just just meaningless, just the antithesis of that. You think of that horrible song, and then you think of George Harrison's song, the insinuating beauty and the way, it, and then or be clobbered over the head with this kind of this stupid sloganeering. Show me one bit of good that song ever did, or what? what his voice. But what does it mean? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know. It's just sort of empty. It's got a great bagpipe solo. Yeah. <laughs> Akadaka had bagpipes. Mm. You're the voice, bagpipes. Sorry, yeah, no, I don't like it. Okay, well, it's forced. It's forced. So there we go. Um, and I have to say that it really astounds me that somebody... Sorry, who was that night, Steve? Who? Steve Kilby. Steve, right, right, okay, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And, look, and what, what did he write that was like culturally? Oh, significant? look, look, that's a good question. But actually, the response to that is not well. What did you do of any significance? For me, I'm actually really interested to connect with Steve Kilby and to better understand what is it really that you don't like about that song. It's to me personally. I'll, Didn't I'll, it up. I'll clearly <laughs> say. His thinking and my thinking do not align. Not at all. But Me that... either. We're not being biased John Farnham fans here either. We are simply saying, that's fine, Steve, but you didn't back it up with anything other than you just don't like it. Pompous. What? Like, it's like, like what, what are you talking about, mate? But, you got to back it up, mate. But rather than invalidate the perspective that he's putting forward by saying, okay, so what have you done that's of any significance? To me, it's not about that. I'm fascinated by the fact that someone has that perspective. And personally, I'm interested to have a bit of an understanding as to what is it seriously that they don't like. 
Because he gave us nothing. At, gave us well, at this point, there isn't a, a response to that question. To, I'm, I'm not saying his perspective is invalid. And as I said, it, is, it does not align with my thinking at all. Me either. But... I'm with you, Nigel, but if you don't if you don't like something, you've got to back it up. The, the best that I got was he thinks that the, the 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 message in the song and the lyrics was a bit on the nose to him, or it's like you know you know you know the message of "You're the Voice" and stuff, the one that most people seem to connect with. It just seems like it's just bypassed him. Like I, I'm with you. I think that like I'd love to have a discussion with him to to, to go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand that, Steve. You're wrong, but you know. <laughs> so, um, but. To express such disdain for the song and to, in that same space, not have the conversation to legitimately explain Nige. yourself. Nigel, um, to use the pun, right? Give me a reason and I'll come running, okay? Because, like, if you're not going to back it up and give me anything to work with, right, then you just sound like, you know, just a sad, angry at the world, really, type of individual who just wants to be different for different sake. And if something's popular, then I don't like it. It's not good. Like, well, like I don't want to go with the masses. You know what I mean? Like, and so that's the way that Steve's comment there, uh, like, you know, that's the impression that it leaves on me. And I'm with you. I would love to have a conversation with the man and actually get him to give us the actual reasons why. All right? So. <laughs> yeah, and I'm not offended by the comment. Um, I just... It's hard for me to actually accept that based on the fact of there's nothing that reasonably explains yeah, we like more. what it is yeah. that he doesn't like about it. And that's yeah. where it's really hard. It's not a hard pill to swallow that someone does not like the song, but I just can't appreciate those comments and accept that oh, that's just, the be all and end all without just like we said it comes across as just you are angry and you are like you know not wanting to follow the popular opinion rather than because it's the way you really feel so that's yeah all. come on steve give us a bit better response than that mate. <laughs> yeah yeah happy to hear what you got to say but you got to do better than what you did that's it <laughs> yeah and listeners of our show as well, Nige, uh, if you've got an opinion about uh, what Steve Kilby had to say about your the voice, mm. I'm sure that uh, actually, I'm sure that they, I'm sure you all will. Yeah. So. Yeah, I don't think we need to ask for it. I think that's gonna, <laughs> there'll be a few messages about it. I reckon. Nige, you're on the home stretch now, mate. But uh, let's just uh, touch upon just a couple of things just before we go. Uh, the whole clapping thing with your the voice. Do you want to give the listeners a bit of a rundown about that? Yeah, sure, mate. Um, as I'm sure people are aware that uh, for all of the releases of Witchwing Jack on CD in Australia before the 20th remastering, um, the first four seconds of the You're the Voice Clap were cut off yeah, they were. Of, the, of the track. I'm not sure if that extends to the Anthology 1 as well. No, it uh, does. Yep. It yeah, does. Yeah, yeah, right. It's any time the song has appeared on CD post its release... Up until two thousand six. Yeah, right. So, um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So there, there was that, and it wasn't present on the vinyl or the cassette. Yeah, that's issues. right. That's why I bought some international copies, the Japanese and the German pressings of Whispering Jack, in order to see if it was the same issue there, and it was not. So, it was obviously a fault with the manufacturing here in Australia. So what I did in preparation for the 20th anniversary, knowing that something would come up because they celebrated the 10th, 
I wrote a letter to uh, TalentWorks and actually made a point of the the omission of the first four seconds. Yeah, just yeah, the fact magically whether the whether they could actually <laughs> take note of that and actually fix the problem. Well, um, we spoke yeah. to Ross Fraser and we actually mentioned that and um, just in order to keep it going, I'm not going to replay uh, his interview segment, but essentially he said he didn't remember anything about receiving the letter. But at the end of the day, um, the remastering, thankfully, um, also um, bought us the full recording of You're the Voice uh, on the 20th anniversary release. With the missing seconds. But uh, yeah, yeah. look, I'm going to give you full credit for that, Nigel. I think the timing is a little bit uncanny, personally. But uh, but like, who knows? Who knows? A part of If they wanted to do the remaster, the full remaster that they did, uh, it could have just been part of the process that they went back to some you know, older masters to create that. So, but, but I just think that the timing is quite uncanny. So I, I, in my heart, I'll always give you full credit for fixing Whispering Jack. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, more specifically for fixing your, the voice. Yeah. The beginning. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it uh, played a role, but Hey, um, I, I was very grateful that I ended up writing that letter and even more grateful when I bought the 20th anniversary to hear that it had actually been, uh, rectified. And just quickly for the listeners, let's have a quick uh, back-to-back for you now. This is the first one. And then, of course, here we've got the um, re-release for the 20th anniversary. So that's them. Okay. Let's, let's move straight along then. Uh, sure. The music video, just quickly as well, Nige. Uh, yeah, the, the famous more so for featuring Darren Hinch and Jackie Weaver, of course. That's right. And um, as much as You're the Voice was written as a protest song, one of the things I think that's resonated very well in Australia, at least, is that You're the Voice has sort of become identified also as a stand against domestic violence. And Yeah. Um, I think yeah. that's portrayed very well within... Uh, the film clip the video and john's like the savior he like takes a little girl and then puts <laughs> her on the pedestal and yep. <laughs> I, I look at the, the the music video as a you know a little bit of a juxtaposition of two parts Nigel. i really really like appreciate the black and white first half uh, i think it ties into the album cover and the theme of whispering jack very very well yeah, uh, yeah. i like john on the conveyor belt with all the blurred out people behind him as he moves along with the mm-hmm. profile shot i like that the second half is a little bit like more of just a, a live performance, isn't it? Um, yeah. With yeah. Uh, Brett Garsed's there, Nicky Nichols is there. Yeah, and Greg McCainch as well. Pseudo Echoes, Vince Lee on drums. That always used to confuse me as a youngster. I always was wondering where Angus was. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, um, well. but, yeah. But do you have, do you share a similar feeling there about that second half, Nige? Like as in, I do like the curtain spin. Like, you know, when, they, when it turns to colour. I like that, but... Um, after that, it's just a John performance live, isn't it? I know, but at the time, we weren't really overly familiar with John performing live, and um, it gives some sort of representation as to. Um, and yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't it's know. just it's just not as it's it just the storytelling goes out the window. It's more of a celebration of John singing the song, which I don't have a massive issue with. It's just I do prefer the first half of that music video. I got to say, yeah, that's all. Um, yeah, and the other thing you wanted to pick up on, Adam, was the live performances as well. Yes, yeah, the live performances because there's been that many of them as well. No, I mean, yeah. I know we said in Pressure Down that we've that we've heard this song a lot. You're the voice, even more so. Obviously, performed at the 99.9 percent of John's live gigs since he's uh, 
recorded the song. Uh, yeah. Just the SB at the SB at the launch of the last time tour night. Uh, it was an omission for some reason, uh, probably because of the small audience. I don't mm. know. Like yeah, it's just, yeah. just the only time that it wasn't performed. So just a little footnote there. Quite strange. And um, I will, in this case, throw to a very quick clip, which is uh, Glenn Wheatley, where he's asked about um, John performing "You're the Voice." So we'll throw to that. Does he sing it every time he performs? He has to. But he wants to as well. I mean, the audience would kill him if he didn't. So, yeah, it's quite strange that uh, he elected to do um, one performance where he then didn't perform You're the Voice. In regards to an actual live show of like, you know, 10 plus songs or something like that, mm -hmm. it's the only one that I know of. I'd be interested if any of our listeners have any uh, more information there about whether John omitted his biggest song at any other show. But that's just the one that I know for a fact in which yeah. it wasn't. Yeah. Um, but any personal highlights of You're the Voice, Nige? Well, musically, um, the one that has always stood out to me as such an impressive one has been the performance within the Chain Reaction Tour. It's one of my favourites too. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know that there's others and that they do different things in other performances, but uh, for the actual quality of the band and the performance itself, um, that's the one that I think really uh, stands out amongst all of them. Yeah. The thing about You're the Voice is it's always a highlight of a live show, right? Uh, but it's always at a very, very similar level, I find, as in like it's always great. Uh, yeah. But, it, you know, a lot of them just merged together for me. Mm -hmm. As in, like, you know, it, it's your the voice. You know it's going to be great, right? Yep. So a couple of special mentions. You've got to mention um, the Sound Relief Coldplay performance in 2009. It's like a big sort of another comeback for John, wasn't it? It was like the beginning of a yet another comeback, which yeah. he's made lots of jokes about over the years. Uh, the other one, Nides, that stands out when I think about it is in 2003 when John was inducted into the ARIA Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. um, he did a absolutely crowd pleasing <laughs> get on your feet version um where the, he implemented a little bit of long way to the top into the uh, bagpipe solo as well which was which was interesting to say the least but um i think it was just the energy of that night it was just a, a special celebration of john and his amazing achievements in 2003 so that one always sticks in my mind too yeah right that's good yeah. Yep. Um, Adam, we've got so much more that we could actually talk about. You're the voice, and you know we are fastly running out of time. I think we do need to wrap up this episode. We do. It's um, epic. But um, the, we've got so much content that is really—it's a shame to cut it out. So we're going to do a uh, bonus episode following this one, where we get to dive into an aspect of You're the Voice um, that is really worthwhile. It's worthwhile featuring it as uh, a bonus episode. And um, I'm going to kickstart that episode off actually with comments because we asked Gaynor about whether she's got any memorable performances of You're the Voice that really stand out to her. Mm -hmm. And yeah, she does. Absolutely she does. So um, 
I'm going to leave her comments for that bonus episode, and that's going to kickstart um, that next episode. So um, I'd right. encourage anybody to uh, tune in to our next episode where we can uh, pick up on that and explore You're the Voice in a very different way, um, but further. So, um, But we need to look at wrapping up this episode now. We do, Nige. It's been epic, but uh, great work. Great work by you, my friend. And um, also... Let's just let listeners or remind the listeners about the fact that we can be found on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and X. We're still getting used to X here at the uh, He's the Voice podcast. Uh, we can also be found on all the major podcasting platforms. And we do appreciate those uh, listeners who have left us reviews as well, uh, particularly the five-star ones. They're obviously the most desired. Yeah, but, thanks. Um, so we're just going to wrap up this episode, as we do traditionally, with a live version of You're the Voice. Uh, this is from the Melbourne Sports and Entertainment Centre in March 1987. Uh, but this one's quite unique, right, Nige? Yeah, it is. Uh, this one also features the Australian Children's Choir backing and um, also the Melbourne Bagpipe Band. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly right. It was an epic end to this show. It's got to be said. It's it, it's pretty big. You can't get much bigger than this. So, oh, yeah. 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 But it is a highlight performance of the song. And so uh, thanks very much, uh, listeners, for tuning in. And, uh, yeah, look forward to our bonus episode coming up next. That's right, mate. So um, thanks very much. And we'll wrap up now. And we'll catch up with our listeners shortly with our bonus episode. So have a good one. And I'll catch up with you soon. Yep. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. See you around. He's the voice, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much for what you've done for this song. I love you.